Well, good morning, friends and family. Welcome again to the gathering of the saints where we get to come together to see a greater glimpse of who Jesus is. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he good? You know, as we were singing, I was reminded that Jesus told the Pharisees, he told his disciples that he did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. You know, and, and, and the truth is, I consider myself to be a little bit of a sick person. I'm a little bit morbid. Um, honestly, if you came to my house in an evening, you know, maybe the kids are asleep, you'd see my wife quietly, um, you know, probably watching some period piece or listening to uh, a sermon on YouTube. Um, but if you came and hung out with me in, in my, my kind of area for a little bit, uh, you'd honestly be treated to just an assortment of disturbing videos. Like, like you really would. Like, some of the titles would be something like, you know, world's most deadly shark attacks, right? Or uh, world's most deadly predator encounters. Uh, you know, one of them was like, man gets stuck in cave-in. Man's parachute does not open. I wrote these down. You know, building suddenly collapses on people. And honestly, I was just thinking this week, I was like, I'm not sure what's wrong with me, but I know this much. Chelsea is normal. I'm not. You know, this last week, I stumbled across a video on YouTube, and the title of the video was Exposure. And the video was about uh, this group of four friends who were incredibly co uh, competitive. They were always trying to one-up each other. And they decided that one day they were going to go out and they were going to try to take the perfect picture. So they had this plan. They lived near a state park and they said, hey, we're going to scale this cliff, right? It's got this rock that sort of uh, is over this overhang at the end. We're going to scale this cliff. We're going to go up there. We're going to spend the day. And then we're all going to try to take this perfect picture standing on this rock. So they take the day. They enjoy themselves and they start scaling this cliff and they get up on the rock. And three of the friends um, get up on the rock side by side, and one of the friends goes to set up a tripod with his, um, with his camera on it. And as his back is turned to his friends, he hears someone say, move over. And then he hears the shuffling of feet, and then he hears his friends screaming as their voices descend off the edge of the cliff. And he said, when I turned around, all my friends were gone. It's a sad story. You know, his summation of, of what happened that day was that on the quest to get this perfect picture, one of his buddies must have jostled for the middle position on the rock. And as one of his friends fell in an attempt to save himself, he likely grabbed the other two and they all fell to their deaths. Yes, this is how we are starting Sunday morning. <laughs> Everyone's looking at me like, not, not today, Jameson. It's interesting to me that when you look up causes of death in the world, things like shark attacks, bear attacks, lightning strikes, uh, roller coaster accidents, all of these things pale in comparison to the amount of people who die every single year taking a selfie. Did you know that? More people die every year taking a selfie than all of these incidents. As a matter of fact, Almost as many people die every year trying to take a selfie as do people who die in airplane-related accidents. So just think about that the next time you're flying. <laughs> it's amazing. And as I was thinking about this, a few things became very apparent to me. The first thing was that 
Many of us, including myself, believe that we are the center of our universe. Secondly, is that many of us believe that a perfect life is somehow attainable. Lastly, that narcissism is alive and well in our world and it is killing us. Today, we're going to encounter a master who has a conversation with his disciples. And we're going to witness their contrasting perspectives on who is most important in the world. As we seek to answer this question, what should fill the Christian life with joy? Trust me, we ended morbid, we'll get to joy, okay? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. Today we're going to be reading verses 22 through 26 as we continue in our series, Walking with the Word. And I've titled this sermon, Mirror or Magnifier. John 3 chapter, or John chapter 3 verse 22 says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. You know, we live in a world that's, that's much like Jesus's, even though there's been a lot of time since Jesus was here on the earth with us physically, not a lot of things have actually changed. We still deal with the same compulsions and sins and problems and flaws that those same people in these same stories over 2,000 years ago did. Like, I hate to break it to you guys, but as progressive as we think the world is, it hasn't really progressed very far. Humans have been the same for a long time. And I, agree, I, I think that everyone in this room ultimately struggles with some of the same things that we're going to see John's disciples struggle with today. And the first is the problem of self-promotion. So after his conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night and wanted to become a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus told him, you know, you must be born again. You must rely on God. You must trust in his spirit. The gospel tells us that after this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem, which was sort of the hub of Judaism at the time, and he goes out into the wilderness with his disciples. And he goes out there for a specific purpose. He goes out to baptize. He goes to a place where water is plentiful. Now, the Gospels tell us that Jesus himself did not do any of the baptizing, but that his disciples were the one baptizing. And nevertheless, they, they left Jerusalem to spread this very same message that Jesus had given to Nicodemus, that man must be born again. He must be ushered into new life, into God's kingdom, by God's spirit, and that this new life is ultimately symbolized by this act of baptism. When we go under the water, we are symbolizing, we are identifying with Jesus' death on our behalf. When we come up out of the water, we are symbolizing and uh, identifying with Jesus' resurrection. And the text tells us that many people were coming to receive this new life that Jesus says can only be found in him and only found through the Holy Spirit. Now, the interesting thing is in that same place, there's another man who is doing the same thing. We've met him. His name is John the Baptist. And he is baptizing people into new life as they repent of their sins and turn to God in faith. 
and trust in Jesus. And an argument arises. The text tells us it's a discussion, but it's really an argument between two groups, and it's centered around how baptism should be done and who should do it. So there's a Jewish man who comes to John's disciples and begins to argue with these men about baptism. He obviously has some sort of misunderstandings or grievances about what's happening and how baptism was supposed to be handled. And he begins to make a fuss about it. He begins to argue. And this argument does something that's important. Now, the argument itself is not really important, but it begins to sort of stir this proverbial pot amongst John's disciples. This small and petty disagreement begins to spark a more extensive conversation and discussion about John's ministry of baptism and Jesus's ministry of baptism. And his disciples say this. It says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. That's how they characterize Jesus. Now, notice that it's incredibly different than the way that John the Baptist has characterized Jesus so far in this gospel. Look at the things that Jesus, or John has said about Jesus. This is what he said in chapter 1. He said, Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 30, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Notice the difference in tone between John and his disciples. John says, Look, guys, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. He's so high above me. He's so much better than me. I'm not even worthy to stand in his presence. And his disciples are like, oh, you mean him? That guy over there? John, you mean the one that you made famous, right? Look, John, he's doing the same thing you're doing, and yet everyone's going to him. And what's the problem here? Even though they had heard John's testimony of who Jesus was, some of John's disciples have missed the point. They don't understand the truth of who Jesus is, and they're pinning the ministry of John against the ministry of Jesus. And you can almost hear the bitterness in their voices, in their tone, as they watch the ministry that they are a part of, that they've invested in, that they've bled for, that they've sweat for, be outshined, by somebody else. These men struggle with the sin of self-promotion. Now, I want to qualify that for a second because I know I have a lot of people here who promote various things. Now, what I'm not saying as I characterize this sin of self-promotion, I'm not saying that if you're a realtor, you shouldn't promote your business. I'm not saying that if you're a school teacher, you shouldn't promote your school. Or if you're an author, you shouldn't promote your book. Or if you're a pastor, you shouldn't promote your church. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the act of promoting something. I'm talking about the sin of self-promotion, the sin of taking ourselves and placing ourselves above God and promoting ourselves more than we would promote him. And I'd like to just start by giving you two indicators, two indicators that perhaps, maybe, you might struggle with the same thing that John's disciples are struggling with. The first indicator is this, you're quick to diminish others. 
Now, John's disciples see Jesus, and though Jesus stands as the literal savior of the world, they don't address him as such. They diminish his notoriety and his honor and his power and his fame and what he's come to accomplish. Now, many of us don't have the opportunity to stand in front of God, to stand in the presence of God, and to tear him down, but we do have the opportunity every single day of our lives to look around the world at the things that God is doing in other people's lives and to diminish the people around us. You know, maybe it's the person at work at your job whose sales numbers are up. And in the break room with your colleagues, you go, yeah, that's all right. You know those numbers are a little bit inflated, though, right? <laughs> maybe it's the mom who you're watching, and she seems to have it all together, and her kids are in order, and they're all dressing well, and they, they eat healthy and all these other things. You know, when you're talking with your other group of moms, you go, you know, well, they're, they're really well off financially. You know, she, just, she just has the freedom to thrive. Maybe it's another church or another ministry that's doing well, that's growing, that's having an impact. And you say, well, you know, I don't think it's really about Jesus over there. That's why they're growing. We have this tendency to see someone who's doing well, who's doing something with excellence, who's getting praise, who's receiving honor, who's being blessed, and what do we do? We diminish them. We tear them down. We bring them down to our level. Why? Ultimately, because we want what they have. But we don't have it, so we attempt to tear them down. James puts it this way. In James 4, 1 through 12, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Listen, that you have passions that are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The end of this kind of outlook, worldview of tearing people down and promoting ourselves above them Ultimately, John, or James says, this, this can end in murder. Now, I don't look out here and see very many murderers today, thank God, at least that I know of. I do have a background check process, so, <laughs> so not, not that I know of, but James says, this is what causes quarrels and fights and division and issues among you. You have passions that are at war within you. You want something, and so you don't have it, so what do you do? You fight, you create conflict, you cause division, you tear other people down because you're not content in yourself. You know, a former uh, pastor of mine, uh, a great friend who was really just a spiritual mentor, actually more like a spiritual father to me, um, he loved deep sea fishing and uh, deep sea trapping. And he used to tell me stories about he'd go out on his boat, and one of the things he loved to do is he loved to trap crabs. And he said, you know, the interesting thing about crabs is once you get them out of the trap and you put them in the bucket or the container that you have them in, you never have to put a lid on them. They're not like fish. And I was like, okay, well, why? He said, the interesting thing about crabs is when you put them in a bucket together and one of them begins to climb out to get out, all of the other crabs will reach up and pull them back into the bucket. He said, I never needed a lid. Church, many of us are too busy pulling others down to lift Jesus up. And that's just the truth of it. Many of us are too busy pulling others down to lift Jesus up. We're like crabs in a bucket. And we look at one another's lives. 
and we tear each other apart. We cause division, and we fight, and we quarrel because inwardly we want what others have. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's freedom, I don't know. The second indicator is this. You compare yourself with others. John's disciples point out to John the Baptist, he says, look, John, everyone's choosing Jesus and not you. John, you started this. You made a way for him, John. You announced him. You heralded him. John, you were his hype man. And now everyone's running to him. John, they are not desirous of what you are bringing to the table, but they only want Jesus. The interesting thing here is that actually many people were still coming to John. John was still having a great influence in the spiritual lives of many people in his day, and yet his disciples come and try to tempt him to compare himself with someone else. That person is Jesus. They want him to say, you know what, you're right. I deserve that notoriety. I deserve that attention. I worked for that. That praise should be mine. Now again, most of us don't have the opportunity to stand in front of God and say, please choose me instead of Jesus. But we do compare ourselves with others, do we not? We look at what's going on in someone else's life and we measure our own self-worth by what they've accomplished, what they have, what they're doing, what they've done, where they've gone, who's with them, all of these things. And we compare our gifts, our talents, our ministries, our jobs, our kids, our wives, our families with another person and say, well, this isn't, just, this isn't good enough. I'm not good enough. My life isn't good enough. My lot in this life isn't good enough because someone else has more than I do. Do you ever find yourself in this kind of attitude? I do. I do. Do you ever find yourself envious when someone else is promoted instead of you? Do you spend your best efforts trying to impress others or seem better than your peers? When someone gets praise, are you quick to point out that what they did was really not that special? Like me, you may suffer from the sin of self-promotion. You may be operating out of a desire to glorify yourself, and, and what you need and what I need and what most of us need is to change our perspective on who God is and who we are, and what's most important in the world. We need a right perspective on God's provision. We need a right perspective on God's power as well. Look how John answers this challenge from his disciples. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. John is quick to point out an incredibly important truth that many of us forget on a daily basis. He points out this truth to his disciples. He says, guys, everything I have, everything that's happening, everything you have, all of the blessings we've been receiving, all of the ministry success, everything that is happening I have because it came from God. Everything. 
John understands that any fame or, or notoriety or success or platform or whatever it is, any power to do what God has called him to do is coming from God. So brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me. Listen, your house, your kids, your cars, your job, your mission in this world, your position in your job, your spouse, your role in this church, everything comes from God. Anything good in our lives ultimately is not the result of our hard work or effort. And please, don't leave today saying, Pastor Jameson said we don't need to work. We do. But it's not a result of that. It's not a result of our talents or our gifts or our capabilities, but as a gift from a father who wants to use our lives for his glory. Again, James says this. In James 1.17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good, breath, sight, hearing, the ability to walk, the ability to chew, the ability to hug our spouses, the ability to get angry at our children because they're not listening. All of it, it all comes from him. And when we look at another person's life and their following and their ministry or their family or their possessions and envy what they have, we're doing two things. The first thing we're doing is telling God that what you've given me and what you've done for me and my lot in life is not good enough. Who you made me isn't good enough. God, you made a mistake when you started working in my life. We're saying, yeah, that's nice. It's okay what you've done, but I want that too. Now, this is how it kind of plays out in my household. I have three boys. I have three very hungry boys. And when we make dinners, we will cook a ton of food, but it never seems to be enough. Ever. My children will eat, and they will eat good. And two minutes later, they will come back, and they will ask me for more food, and I will give them more food. And they will be full. They will be close to vomiting. <laughs> they can barely move. And they will say, give me another snack. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Is it not enough? Is it not enough? This is what God sees, the blessings that he doles out and pours out upon us. And we look at them and we take them in and we say, more please. I'd like more. And that's okay. That's okay if we want more of God. But if we simply want God because he gives more blessings, there's a problem. Secondly, we are conflating God's divine blessings, right? The things that he does for our lives, what he chooses to give, ultimately with human achievement. We're looking at what's going on in someone else's life, and we're leaving God's power, his sovereignty, his right to choose, his ability to make decisions in the world he created, to do as he pleases with the world that belongs to him and the people that are in it, his sovereignty, we're leaving it out of the picture. And my friends, we're sick. We're so, so sick. We're obsessed with ourselves. 
that often many of us cannot see that God has big plans that might not have anything to do with us. We are not the center of the universe. That God's plans are not predominantly about pleasing me and giving me what I want, but about growing me to depend on him so that he can use my life to get glory for himself. That's what the Christian life is. And John says the person cannot receive even one thing, one thing, unless it is given to him from above. John's perspective is that the people who came to listen to him and whoever got saved and baptized, how well his, his ministry was going, any success in life came from God. So if, he, if God chose to take that success that belonged to John and say, the fruits of your ministry are now going to grow somebody else's ministry, guess what? That's God's decision. That's God's decision. It belongs to him. John says, it doesn't, doesn't belong to me. He gave it. I received it from him. It wasn't from me. It's never belonged to me. It's always been his. And so if he wants to shift that notoriety and that honor and that fame and that blessing over to somebody else, I rejoice that God is in control. That's John's perspective. And for John to be discontent with God's gifts or envious of what God has given others would prove that ultimately John was not concerned about God's glory, but he was concerned about his own glory. How content are you with what God has given you? How content? Fathers, are you content with the children that God has blessed you with? Even when they're driving you crazy and they refuse to listen? Mothers, are you content with your unique role in your home? Are you satisfied that God has called you to be a mother and to love and care for your children? Husbands, are you content with the wife that God has given you? Do you see her as unique and beautiful and a blessing that God sovereignly handed down from above and brought to you, not to be an object of your pleasure, but to be an agent of your sanctification? Wives, are you content with your husbands? Even though we screw up like every day? <laughs> Do you love him? Do you see him as a blessing? Children, are you content with the parents that God has given you, knowing that he birthed you into that family to be raised by those parents because he has a plan in your life and it, it involves their leading? Are you content? My friends, God doesn't make mistakes. He's sovereign. He's in control. God has us where he has us to advance his glory and his gospel through us. And the question isn't whether you're a mother or a father or a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or a pastor or a businessman or an author or a mechanic. Those things don't really matter. What matters is are you a gospel advancing, Christ-exalted mother, father, sister, brother, mechanic, or are 
You a self-exalting, self-advancing one. And praise God, John gives us a great example. He says no. He refuses to play into the trap set up for his disciples. And, and, and just honestly, so many of us fall into, he says, no, I'm content. I've been given so much. And the best thing I've been given is Jesus. It's Jesus that's the center of the story. It's Jesus that's the main character. It's Jesus that the universe orbits around. He says, I'm not the Christ I'm not the chosen one. He is. And he finds pleasure and joy in that. John finds legitimate pleasure in exalting Jesus. Here's our last point. I want to talk to you about the pleasure in prizing Christ. Look what John says in verse 29 and 30. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John gives us this wonderful picture here. John explains, he says, guys, I'm like the best man in a wedding. He says, I'm like a wedding planner who's planned all of these wonderful things. I've helped facilitate this day. You see, in John's culture, the last person to be revealed in a wedding ceremony was the groom. We sort of do it differently in America, where you have the groom and the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, and who comes down the aisle? The bride, right? But in John's culture, it was different. Everyone lined up, and they anticipated the arrival of the groom. And John is saying, friends, I'm like the best man who's watching the groom come down the aisle to meet his bride for the first time. He says, this is what I was born for. I've planned these festivities. I've got it all set up and my heart rejoices when I hear Jesus's voice because it means that the groom is coming for the bride. And the wedding is going to be complete. John says, this is why I was born, my disciples. He said, God chose me for this. My job was to get the bride to come to the groom, and now the groom is on his way. And what? I'm supposed to be envious of him? I'm supposed to promote myself above him? I'm supposed to be frustrated because what I came to do is now taking place? It's preposterous. He said, no, you don't understand. This is all I've ever wanted. Do you guys remember the story of John and Elizabeth's womb? What happened on the first day? The first day that John was in his mother's womb and Mary comes to meet her and Jesus is in her womb. What did John do? He leapt with joy. He said, from the moment I was conceived, this was God's plan for my life. And my friends, Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride and he's coming to save his church. He's coming to marry his bride and that fills me with such joy. I know sometimes Sundays can seem somewhat monotonous, like we're just doing this thing over and over again. When you got married, who had a wedding rehearsal? I didn't because I'm cheap. <laughs> who had a wedding rehearsal? Guys, every Sunday is a wedding rehearsal. 
Every Sunday is us getting prepared for the groom that is coming to marry us. Do you understand that? Every single Sunday. That's why every single Sunday you're going to hear about Jesus. You're going to hear about his death and resurrection. You're going to hear about his holiness. You're going to hear about his awesomeness either from my mouth or from Dan's mouth. Because at the end of the day, guys, I want Jesus to get the girl. I want Jesus to get the girl. That's why we try really, really hard to set ourselves aside and exalt Jesus because he's the one you should be pleased with. Oh my God, please, for the love of God, never adore me. Never. Never adore him. Never adore anyone on this stage. Never adore anyone speaking eloquently. Never adore anyone who's talented. Jesus is the one you should be looking at and the person you should be looking forward to, not people. And how does John put this? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, John had it right. John knew what his mission on the earth was. You see, when God saved many of us, what he did is he placed a magnifying glass in our hands, okay? And he said, your job is to look through this magnifying glass and see God who often seems so small and so insignificant. I want you to look through this magnifying glass and see Jesus as this big and beautiful and wonderful person that he is. And then I want you to go out into the world and I want you to take that magnifying glass and I want you to hold it up to people's eyes so that they can see Jesus for as wonderful as he is and as big and awesome and powerful as he is. That's your job. But you know what many of us have done? We've taken that magnifying glass and we've smashed the lens out of it. And in its place, we've put a mirror. And instead of going and showing people how wonderful Jesus is and looking through the magnifying glass to see how Jesus is, we hold up the mirror and we're enamored with ourselves. And that's not God's desire at all. He desires that, like John, we would rejoice at the appearance of the groom and find our joy in him and watch others come to him and ask that no one ever glorify or worship us. That's the goal. And so what should fill the Christian life with joy? Pointing others to Jesus and seeing Jesus exalted. We should be joyous when we see others running to churches, not because the church is awesome and not because it's got great music or because there's great preaching or the pastor dresses nice, but they're running to church because Jesus is there and I need Jesus. We should be excited about that. We should be zealous to look through the lens of the magnifying glass and to see God as awesome as he is. And so when I ask you a question, do you find the idea of God getting what he wants joyful? Do you find the idea of God doing and getting what he wants, filling you with joy? Jesus taught us to pray how your kingdom come, your will be done. John says, this completes my joy. It fills me with joy. Does your heart overflow at the thought and get excited and, and be full of delight at the thought of others coming to know Jesus just because Jesus is great? Do you derive your rewards from seeing Jesus lifted high? 
or from you being magnified. And if I'm honest, when I am most happy in my life, it's not when Jesus is getting all the glory, but when people are whispering in my ear, Jameson, great job. Jameson, you're awesome. Jameson, you got some talents. Or when my wife affirms me and says, hey, honey, doing great. That's when I'm most happy. That's when my heart rejoices and I see that I worship myself more than I worship God. Last thing we're going to point out. The order here is incredibly important. John says what? He must increase so I may decrease. We often try to make it work backwards, right? We hear a sermon about how much we worship ourselves, and then we run home and we say, I'm going to get humble. <laughs> I'm going to diminish, reduce myself. We pray to God. We say, God, make me humble. God, make me patient. God, make me righteous. But we rarely ask, God, fill up my life with affections for you. Fill up my vision with how great you are. Lord, show yourself to be so big that there is no room for me to worship myself. That's what we should be praying. We should be praying, Jesus, be the most important thing in the world to me. And we need that. We need Jesus to make himself more important, more glorious, more worthy of our praise. He needs to eclipse our vision so that when we look at ourselves and we look at the world and we open our eyes, we see Jesus moving and working everywhere and we find joy in that. We want Jesus to take up the whole of our vision. At that point, we can say with John, you must increase. I must increase. And here's the thing, no matter where you are at your walk with Jesus, whether or not you've been walking with Jesus for two months, or you've been walking with Jesus for 60 years, or you're the pastor of the church, or you're serving in kids' ministry, or you're making social media posts, or you're out talking to people about Jesus, doesn't matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, there's always room for Jesus to loom larger in our vision and for us to look at ourselves just a little bit smaller. This is how the reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said this. He said, God created the world out of nothing. When I realize I am nothing, perhaps he can use me as well. When I realize I am nothing, perhaps he can use me as well. My friends, the truth is we all struggle with this. We all struggle with lifting our self-glory above God's glory. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There's a remedy for it. And that remedy is Jesus himself, that God sent his son, Jesus, perfect and holy. Not for one second did Jesus ever glorify himself above the Father. Not for one second did Jesus ever seek himself, did he ever seek to serve himself. But for 33 years, not even for a millisecond, did he sin against God. And Jesus died on the cross for our self-worship so that we could be released from that that we might worship God in spirit and in truth, that we might worship God in the way that he deserves to be worshiped. And not only did God send Jesus for us, but God cares about us. I know I beat you up this morning, but it's because I love you. God cares about us. 
God knows that we struggle. He's near. He hasn't divorced himself from us. He knows that we do often not see the great blessings that he's given us, that we're often fickle with what he's doing and we promote ourselves and we look at other people's lives and we covet and we have envy and we fail and he, and he sees all of this. But he sent Jesus to redeem us from it, that Jesus might be the greatest treasure and prize in our lives. And this is what I want you to do. We're going we're gonna to go to prayer in a minute. So I just think the Holy Spirit needs to do some work. I want you guys to do two things, okay? First, if anything I've said has convicted you and the Holy Spirit is working in your life and you say, you know what, Jameson, I'm like you. I worship myself often. Can we just repent of that this morning? Can we just go to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry. I need your help. God, I often put myself before you and your will in my life, and I don't want to do that anymore. That's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing I want you guys to do is I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the, do you know the Holy Spirit has a very specific job? The Holy Spirit's very specific job is to exalt Jesus and exalt the Father. That's all he does. He exalts the other people, the other persons of the Trinity. And so we're going to go to the Holy Spirit and just ask, Holy Spirit, would you show me one thing I can do this week to make Jesus loom larger in my vision? What's one thing I can do this week so that when I look at Jesus, I say, Jesus is just a little bit bigger than he was yesterday, okay? Band guys, you can come up. We'll just, uh, we'll just put some music on and we'll just pray for a little while, okay? Let's get our eyes off of ourselves and get our eyes on Jesus. Mm. We love you. Holy Spirit, work in our lives and make us like John. Work in our lives so that when we are tempted to tear others down or to diminish what you've done in our lives, to exalt ourselves or our talents or our capabilities above your gracious gifts and who you are. Lord, rise up powerfully in our lives that we would say no, that man cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given from God, and that we would see everything we are and everything that's happening and all that we've done and every single one of our accomplishments as not to our glory, but to your glory. Lord, help us 
to smash the mirror of self-obsession and to again replace it with a lens that magnifies you. Lord, help us to not chase a perfect life, but to see, to see that we already have perfect life in you. To see, God, that you are satisfying and that Jesus is the one to be prized. Oh, Lord, we want this so bad. And it rails against our flesh. Lord, it rails against our nature. And so, Lord, we need you and we plead for you, God, that you would do this because we can't do it without you. You must show yourself glorious. That is the only way our perspective will change. So, Lord, show yourself glorious. Show us that the groom is coming and that is reason to rejoice and let everything else fall away that we would fix on this one thing that we have you and that's enough. We love you. We're deeply indebted to your grace and we need it now that we might be people who truly love and truly prize and are truly satisfied in God, that when people see us, they would say, those men and women at Convergent Church have something special. They have Jesus, and he must be enough. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.